Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and for the second time, I've got July in the studio. I last spoke to Tom Newman, singer of July, and uh, Peter Cook, lead guitarist for July, about six years ago now. And um, there's been lots of things going on in the world of July, so it was great to, to link up with Tom and Peter again. We opened the show with the wonderful My Clown by July, which was uh, on that fabulously rare and expensive album on Major Minor in 1968. Um, but the th- interesting thing reading about you, Tom and Peter, is your songwriting partnership that you had back in the 60s, which you've sort of 
resurrected uh, in the recent years. Yeah, I can't remember whose idea it was. Was it yours, Pete? I can't well, remember. Well, yeah, I mean, it all came about when the guys came back from Spain, the lost Tomcats came back from Spain. Tom and uh, John come and knock me up and said, are you still playing guitar? Uh, I'd sold my Strat and everything else. I had this crappy old Levin 12 string. So I said, well, what do you think? I've got a crappy 11 12 string. So, but it got my interest going again and started working with Tom. We got together and Tom probably doesn't remember this so much because I've spoken to him about it before, but we got a, a band together with a guy called Jim Avery playing on bass who went on to be the bass player of Thunderclap Newman. And we were writing some stuff which uh, people were saying was like Pink Floyd. And I'd never heard of Pink Floyd, so I didn't know what the shit they were talking about. But we nearly got a recording contract and it all kind of fell through at the last minute. But Tom and I did get a songwriting contract with Chapels. So we thought we were going to make our fortune then and we wrote some great songs. <laughs> uh, and we had some guy, one of the, 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 the people we had to write for was a Stanley Unwin wannabe i don't know if you remember stanley unwin but he mixed up all his words and we had to write a song and in the words it had to be i like to lish your kips so <laughs> that shows you the level we kind of got to but it was that that was the catalyst if you like of, of the songs that ended up on the the july album uh oh it was first it was taylor wasn't it eve taylor sandy shaw's manager as yeah was. sandy shaw's manager and you know she was quite a a powerful force in the 60s rock and roll thing and uh, she managed various people well she wanted us to be sandy shaw's backing band and we said no we're the tomcats we're, <laughs> yeah. we ain't no one's backing band because we're very smart business people we always made the right <laughs> decisions <laughs> <laughs> and uh you you mentioned lost tomcats tom and um i'm playing atu vera which is uh one of the picks from the uh, new RPM Running at Shadows album, but... Yeah, I know, that's funny, isn't it? That whole thing just, uh, that was a bit of a surprise. I mean, I thought those tracks were a lot in the midst of time, really. I think we did about four, three or four EPs when we were out. We went out to Spain because Tony Duig, who was the, he was the, the lead guitarist in the July band, uh, he came from a band in Ealing called The Second Thoughts, with along with John Field. And he got us out to Spain originally. Just It was just me from the Tomcats. This was Spain still in the period of, um, of, uh, of General Franco, you know, the dictatorship. So, and so it wasn't, it, not much was heard of Spain, really. It wasn't like the holiday resort that it, it became after Franco died. It was uh, it was still kind of fairly fairly dark, really, Spain, and because uh, it was kind of we stayed there for I think it was about eighteen months eventually, and uh, we did these three or four out um, EPs for um, Phillips, I think it was Phillips phonogram or something like that, and and they they we had a couple of hit records out of it in the Spanish charts, you know. And now all of a sudden it came, I don't know how um, they got hold of it, but, but somebody, who was it? Was it Cherry Red? It's yeah. Out. yeah, Cherry Red RPM. Yeah, they, um, they contacted me and they're out now, which is quite, quite amazing, really. Cool, well let's play The Tomcats, or Lost Tomcats and Atuvera. 
siempre el apellido tuyo Hasta que por ti me muera A tu pera Siempre el apellido tuyo Siempre el apellido tuyo Hasta que por ti me muera Que no miraste tus ojos, que no llamaste a tu puerta, que no pisaste de noche las piedras de tu calleja. Contigo la luna de primavera A tu pera, a tu pera Siempre la avenida tuya Siempre la avenida tuya Hasta que por tu me muera Muy bien A tu pera Siempre la avenida tuya, siempre la avenida tuya, hasta que por ti me muera. Que no me rase tus ojos, que no llamase a tu puerta, que no pisase de noche las piedras de tu calleja. was Lost Tomcats, the Tomcats, Atuvera, one of the highlights from the new RPM compilation of the Tomcats material, Runny at Shadows, the Spanish recordings. Another favourite of mine from that Tomcats compilation is the song, uh, the title song of that comp, Running at Shadows. Is that written by you, Tom? Yeah, that was the first song I ever wrote. I completely, actually, I'd completely forgotten it until um, Cherry Red, remind, you know, reminded me reminding me about all that period and but it, yeah that was the very first song i ever wrote very angst-ridden you know i was about 14 or 15 i think when i wrote that i got a feeling it was over being dumped i got dumped by a, a girl called gloria bucknell who, who lived two doors away from me in perryvale I've been here without you all my 
my days have been sad and blue Crying too, whoa, 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 whoa I've been here without you All my days have been sad and blue Crying too, oh, 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 oh Running in shadows Tell you I have those dreams again Need you beside me Don't try to hide my running in shadows The, the July thing, I mean, if you remember, we are talking about the bit that you don't remember when we were having a band trying to make it after Lost Tomcats and we were writing songs and had the writing contract. Then Sergeant Pepper come out and we was knocked out with that. And we, you, me and John Fields used to meet at John Fields' house and we used to play the Beatles stuff and we used to start yeah. playing around. And they said, let's, let's get a band together. And that's when all the material started coming forward. But... What I didn't know, and I don't think you knew at the time, is that John was still playing in a band with Tony and Alan. Yeah, and, no, I didn't know that. And John and I, you know, I've sorted it out with him. We're all we're, we're okay with it now, but we're both strong personalities. He didn't like the fact I had strong ideas, and I was kind of like fairly rocky, and he was slightly more kind of weird, which is which is why July worked. And suddenly. I was slipped off the scene and this new, you know, Lost Tomcats re-emerged as July. And I know they were recording stuff at the organ shop in Ealing and I wasn't allowed to go to any of the sessions because obviously they, they, John thought I would start interfering and give him my view and everything else. So it kind of ended up, it's, it wasn't a very nice period of time. It was a bit bitter, but um, oh, that's, that's rock and roll, isn't it? That's rock and roll. So we're playing uh, Dandelion Seeds, of course. Who who wrote that song and what was the genesis? The ma- maestro wrote that one. I'd started to listen to John Lee Hooker and I was very affected by his kind of pushy, very simple E minor sort of sort of rhythm that he, he hacks through, you know, on, on several of these songs. And I, I think that was part of Dandelion's. That was the the way I saw Dandelion Seeds, and my recollection is that it got picked up by John and Tony and kind of fiddled with. They've done a brilliant job in fiddling with it, I've got to say. Well, I don't know. I hated that whole dreary middle bit where it, it sinks into something else. That was, I'm almost sure that was John's idea. And, and I hated that at the time. And even now, I mean, when we first started to do live stuff, you know, when the band kind of reformed, we spent quite a lot of time trying to 
recreate what was on the record, but but it's ever so difficult. And the last couple of gigs that we did, which I really enjoyed, were the gigs that where we let's just treat it like a jam, let it take its own course, and see our little backing band is is the Sonic Jewels. They're young lads, and they don't. It's very difficult to get young lads to focus on a proper arrangement straight off a record. But amazingly, it always works. Every gig, we, we've never had a bad gig, and, and they've always been packed out, and they always rock away. And what amazes me even more is that 60 or 70 people down the front, all of them young enough to be my grandchildren, and they know the words better than I do. Fly by my side. Deep 
What's this about you uh, being on the roof when uh, the Beatles were doing their rooftop concert? Yeah, that was a funny situation. I had a girlfriend who died of a, an ectopic pregnancy. It really it set me back, you know, psychologically and emotionally for several years. Uh, out of that, I'd started painting. I'd kind of given up the idea of writing music or being involved in the in the in the music business completely i had a job as a sign writer in john sanders department store in Eden broadway and i started painting so i was doing these paintings that were kind of kind of science science fiction planets with lots of moons and all you know odd odd stuff like that because i, I was living in a, a weird fantasy world at the time and i had this idea of, of just trying to make a living really and of course i was still incredibly kind of a fan of, of the Beatles and everything that they did. And I, I decided one, one morning to take a couple of paintings up to London and see if I could get into the Apple headquarters in Savile Row. I was walking up Savile Row trying to pluck up the courage to do something. <laughs> so I was kind of mincing up and down the road with these paintings under my arm trying to see if I had the balls to actually go up the steps and bang on the door, you know. And, the, and a van was parked outside, uh, unloading equipment, and I, I just walked, I was on the same side of the street as the van, the opposite side to the door, Savile Road. This guy got out of the van and said, Tom, what are you doing here? And it was a guy called Adrian Wolfe who lived in our street, in, in where I lived, in Perivale. I said, Adrian, what are you doing here? He said... Um, we're doing a, we're filming. The Beatles are going to play on the roof. You're kidding. And he said, no, no. Yeah. And he gave me this, this flight, a little tiny, a little flight case with some lenses or whatever it was in it. He said, yeah, grab hold of that and come in and, and I'll get you in. So I became Adrian Wolf's roadie for <laughs> about half an hour, taking crap into Apple and going up the stairs about four or five, it was right up to the roof. And we want a lift, so you had to went up the stairs. And uh, I couldn't believe it. It was like walking into the Magical Mystery Tour, you know. There was all these little dolly birds and geezers, you know, with trendy flares on. and <laughs> Straight out of Carnaby Street. 
you know, and amongst them there's like Beatles wandering about. And uh, Ringo's drum kit was set up. I put this painting that I wanted to see if I could sell, this kind of space age thing, behind Ringo's drum kit. And I just hid on the roof because I thought I'd get chucked out. Mal Evans was wandering about and Neil and, you know, they came on. I was inc- I was amazed at just how how much like the Beatles they sounded. Uh, you know, I mean, but not just like the Beatles, but it was spot on. They didn't, there was no mistakes. It was absolutely perfect. They, they, they did get back. And in fact, the, because the, they were recording it as well. I didn't know that, but they were recording it in the basement. And actually I used their basement studio uh, a few years after that to record Paul's brother, Mike McCartney. They were just playing through little tiny Fender, you know, I don't know, little baby Fender amp and a Fender PA system, and it was they were just mic'd up with half a dozen mics, and it was the best rock and roll sound I've ever heard, really. And it wasn't that loud. I mean, it, we, the cops came out and complained because of the noise, but actually it wasn't really very loud. And I, I sold the painting. I got 25 quid for the painting from Neil Aspinall. And I was talking, Tom, about Right Place, Right Time as well, you know, your link up with Mike Oldfield seems very much the, the same sort of scenario where, uh, was it Mike took some demos to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that, somehow that hasn't got the same... To me, that's not nearly as... Oh, no, they, I mean, a lot uh, a lot came out of it, the whole of that meeting, but hmm. it didn't... Uh, it wasn't so much fun as going on. <laughs> no, I mean, it was... That, I think the reason it didn't... It didn't impress me at the time was that it because it was all new i I was expecting it to fail rather than succeed you know and really even though I loved what Michael was doing and I and I pushed like mad to get virgin to to release it I didn't expect it I mean because I'd spent that the whole of my my youth up until then I mean I was 30 when I did my coalfield and I so I'd spent the majority of my youth failing. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the Mike Holfield thing took off. Not be- not so much, well, I mean, it was it was definitely because of me up to a point, but because he wouldn't have got the deal if I hadn't loved the record, the, the demo that he played me. It was really, it was Richard Branson that, that made that happen because of the amount he put into promoting something that, bless him, he had no idea what it was. He wasn't into music at all. You know. He was promoting something that he had absolutely no concept of what to do with it. How long did it take to record the album? Because there's, there's all the talk about the number of overdubs, etc. The number of overdubs got inflated by Richard almost immediately. I mean, he was talking about 2,000 overdubs and, and it was nowhere near it. I mean, I don't know. You, how many overdubs can you get onto 16-track tape? I suppose the most we ever did over one section would have been probably, oh, maybe 25 or 30. I mean, it, it depends how you count it. If you look at the whole album and look at everything that gets recorded as an overdub, because there was only two bits of it that were actually live, and that was the, the Caveman song, and, the, well, that's about it, really. Uh, the rest of it was all stitched together from two or three overdubs and then built up, built up over that. And so... 
I would have, I'd be surprised if we did any more than a hundred overdubs, really. But it was good. You know, I enjoyed doing it, and I'm never so glad that it it went where it went. I got a lovely, I got a lovely letter from Richard not that long ago, three weeks ago, and he said, "Well, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have the responsibility of feeding eighty thousand people right now." <laughs> He's got. 80,000 people on his, on his payroll. <laughs> Bless him. Well, let's hear the, uh, an excerpt from the album that really started uh, Virgin as we know it. Uh, Mike Oldfield and the theme from Tubular Bells.
Peter, can't forget about you because you've become very, very renowned uh, guitar maker and obviously the, the guitar shop as well, which is um, very well known in, in the business. But you made John Entwistle's uh, bass? Well, quite a few of them. I mean, I started off again when the, the rock and roll option wasn't available to, available to me after July. Something that Tom and I had started or were doing in, in the in-between times when we, we didn't have any sort of major projects was we were fiddling around on guitars trying to earn a few bob to feed ourselves. And we'd made a few prototypes from some necks that Tom had bought and found out in a, in a, in a second-hand shop somewhere in, in uh, Edgware or somewhere, I don't know. And we made up some guitars. Oh, harmonies, weren't they, those necks? Yeah. And we had this thing about we were going to make production guitars. And we were talking to people seriously. I drew up this business plan, complete fantasy, about how we were going to make these guitars and sell them. And that kind of went by the by. And so I developed the Nag Cullen range. I was, you know, around the Elian area. And there was a shop there called the Musical Bargain Centre. And John used to go into the Musical Bargain Centre because he lived around Elian as well. And he kind of quite liked the bass that I was making. And he'd done a deal in the end with, with Sims Watts, who were promoting my stuff and distributing my guitars. And he, he decided he liked them and he promoted them. So there's some early adverts of him with one of the, the custom basses, Ned Cullen basses. But then he started to give, call me up and say, you know, can you mend this guitar? Can you mend that guitar? And he had bits and pieces and it became pretty clear that he liked the Thunderbird body shapes but he preferred the fender necks the precision necks so we started putting together some thunderbird mix with fender necks we called them the fender birds and took it a stage further from then and made him quite a few of those in different colors then took it on and made it explorer shape we called them the explorer birds and then it started getting kind of weirder from then he he he, he would say can you make me a guitar like an axe so I say, okay, yeah, yeah. So we made him an axe, which he then used in Tommy as a scene of him, like a church scene, and he's he's there with with the axe. And he then said, can you can you make me a guitar like a streak of lightning? So I said, yeah, fine. Made him a guitar like a streak of lightning, which was used on Who's by Numbers cover. So you've got to join all the dots to do that. And another one he come up with was a flame. Can you make me a guitar like a cartoon flame? Yeah, of course, come up with that, made him that. The funny thing is, they went to auction sometime afterwards and they sold for phenomenal sums in those days. And one of them, and I think it was The Flame, I think it, it sold for $33,000 and then resold for $44,000. For a while, it held the Sotheby's record on guitars until the Jim, one of the Jimi Hendrix strats come up and then it just went that just blew everything away so it held a record for a while so that 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 was good fun i didn't know that Ned. that's amazing i worked with john quite a lot I used to go to the rehearsals and sort stuff out for him and obviously pete townsend used his roadie used to bring me loads of guitars broken up and i mended so many of those with broken headstocks but then pete wanted his stage guitars his numbered guitars he wanted them all to be to feel the same and he'd got this thing about having three pickups he'd got these I think DiMarzio's were the ones at the time, and he wanted a third pickup. So the whole range of numbered Les Pauls, I profiled the necks all exactly the same, got rid of the volute from it because he didn't want that, made them all exactly the same profile, fitted a third pickup in the middle, an extra row of controls and switches. I can't remember what they all done now. There was a ridiculous amount. There's like six knobs on it and about four switches and three pickups. I can't imagine why he'd ever want that, but he did. 
So he had a whole load of those. So that, that, that was a bit of a laugh. Um, they actually, he did actually ask me to go to the States with him on one of their tours, but I had a young family. It was coming up to Christmas. I had a kind of business kind of in the, in the custom guitar world. So I said, no, I don't really fancy that. Along came, snapped up the opportunity, a guy called Alan Rogan, who's now the, the, the guitar tech of the stars. He's traveled with everyone, you know, anyone you'd like to name, every famous guitarist, Alan's been out with him there. And he's a, a proper sort of like guitar nerd in that sense. Good luck to him. That could have been me, but I doubt it because I'm not that sort of guy, really. But that was one of the opportunities, the doors that opened that um, I shut. Normally, someone else shuts them for me, but that one... I shall. Let's listen to a song from the Tommy soundtrack, uh, The Who and I'm Free, which uh, John Entwistle did play on, because I don't think he played bass on all the uh, soundtrack uh, material. Next we have the Beatles cover, She Said, She Said, and that's from uh, an excellent album of yours, Tom, Fine Old Tom. Oh, blimey. Oh, thank you very much. Nobody else has heard of that. You're the only person on the planet apart from me who's ever heard of it. <laughs> oh, Pete would have heard of it because he played on it. All right. When we recorded that at the manor, Pete came down and, and we locked him in the Kazi with a harmonica at one point. What was it? I can't remember what it was he was 
flatten on, but my yeah, there, there, well, there was a couple, weren't there? We, we again, all these weird bands. We we formed the Tomcats again for a while when you were at the manager. You remember with John Varnum, yeah, John Varnum, and Ted McBell, and and we had this stage act, and we had a dummy on stage that everyone used to beat up. It was really quite funny, and there was weird things. <laughs> we're always trying. Every opportunity to be a rock and roll star, we tried it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, the amazing thing was, we we kind of followed the zeitgeist of rock and roll in order to be accepted, and then we fucked it up by putting the weirdest songs in the middle of something that just didn't match. You yeah, know, it yeah. was a determination to self-destruct. I think all the way along, Ned. <laughs> yeah, it's worked. It's a it's a plan that's absolutely well, worked. <laughs> the only successful thing is that we've always managed to fail. Yeah. <laughs> She said, I know what it's like to be dead, I know what it is to be sad, and she's making me feel like I've never been born. I said, to put all those things in your head. That make me feel that I'm mad And you're making me feel like I've never been born She said, you don't understand what I said I said, no, 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 you're wrong When I was a boy Everything was right Tom, um, we've mentioned some of your solo material because we just played your version of She Said, She Said from your excellent, fine old Tom album from 1975. But you carried on, uh, you know, in terms of production and engineering and you, you also carried on working with Mike Oldfield. You know, Michael's a, he's a brilliant, genius instrumentalist, but he's only written about three or four songs that I think are worth shit, really. Five Miles Out is one, the song Five Miles Out. The songs that Michael, that are his best songs, are the ones that he's let me have quite a lot of influence on. And, and his best song in my eyes is Five Miles Out, without a doubt. 
it was from a direct experience that a really scary experience that Michael had very recently had in an aeroplane because he just learned to fly. He was taking his um, twin. He, he learned to fly on a single, obviously, and then he took a twin uh, certification and he ended up in a really, really bad cumulonimbus and it, it scared the life out of him, actually. <laughs> but he wrote the song about it and it was, it was a very powerful song. And what I'm proud of with that is that I, I never let him forget what the song was about. So the dynamics of the song are really locked on to the emotion rather than the musical virtuosity, if you see what I mean.
Tom, um, I wanted to play one of your more recent tracks and uh, a song I like off The Secret Life of Angels is Raphael's Bicycle. You've, you've done quite a lot of instrumental tracks. <laughs> Thank you very much, Secret Life of Angels. Well, I keep plugging away at trying to make albums that just come out of my imagination, you know, and I, I'm always confused about the whole... Because I love science, but I was brought up as a Catholic in a Protestant school, so I've got a real confused Godhead in my head as well. But I still have this enormous reverence for spirituality. And to me, the idea of angels, I really, it really appeals to me. I, and I've got a real faith and belief in some kind of angelic intervention in my life. I really believe that I'm being looked after and kept alive by some force beyond my own uh, stupidity. I mean, despite my own stupidity. And the idea is that, in the album at least, is that the angels are trying out things that only human... The angels are obviously immortal. They can... They're like spiritual beings. And the idea with behind uh, Raphael bicycle is that he persuades God to let him become human for a day just to see what it's like to have to learn to do something in human terms so he, what he's doing is learning to ride a bicycle just like a human would learn to ride a bicycle uh, it, it, you know he keeps tripping up and falling off and coming off the pedals and ringing the bell and so it's really just a little tone poem about the idea of a a mighty archangel relinquishing all his powers just to see what it's like to be human for five minutes, you know. Thank you. 
Raphael's Bicycle by Tom Newman from the uh, Secret Life of Angels uh, album released uh, a couple of years back. Next, I'm moving on to um, the uh, Resurrection album by July and the song A Day to Remember. That's a really uh, great song, uh, uh, guys, that you know about living for the moment and today will soon be gone and make the most of things. That's Pete's, I mean, Pete's entirely, uh, he's, he's, he's always managed to capture the that zeitgeist of that 60s psychedelia thing and we talked long and hard when we first came together again after many years and decided to write uh, another July album uh, we talked long and hard about what the concept of that would be and it would be you know the idea was that you know we were we'd been in stasis in some kind of strange artificial stasis and and we've been called out of stasis, but our heads were still in 1968. You see what I mean? So we were writing kind of songs in about about 2000 and whenever it was, we did it eight or ten or something. Very exciting time, I've got to say. It was like an awakening. You know, it's something that stirs something inside of you. But you know, hearing Tom talk about his life of angels, his deep sort of like feeling in, I must say, I'm a total Philistine. I kind of got no culture whatsoever. I just like sounds and I like playing with words. I'm not a great artist. They're not really poetry in my mind. They don't mean a great deal. <laughs> Can I just interject here? You couldn't write words like you've written like the lyrics that you've written for the for the the resurrection album without having a soul the songs i write about are kind of a bit weird because they can be very depressive if you like are they i suppose a lot of them about being misunderstood and lonely all the things that i probably brought forward with me from from my youth you know as as a 17 year old i was in my mind misunderstood i was frustrated uh, you know was kind of like lonely because I was an arsehole, you know, and when arseholes tend to be lonely, you know, people laying around you for what they can get. And if that's punk in Perivale, I reckon. <laughs> Thank you. 
remember july on resurrection now guys we've only got two songs to go we're almost there <laughs> um the penultimate track is uh, robert reed and uh, a track of um, his forthcoming album sanctuary part two and tis um it's marimba which is a single edit which is now available on his Bandcamp site um tom tell me about um robert reed um seems to have quite a lot of Mike Oldfield influence, but uh, you know, really great artist his own right, and I think you've produced um, his material. Yeah, 
what impressed me was that I've heard a lot of kind of Mike Oldfield, what I would call aficionados, who it seems to me that 90% of them seem to be living vicariously through Michael. They haven't, they're not actually saying any, anything of their own. You know, they're not expressing their own fears or emotions or feelings in any way. And then when I listened to Robert's thing, it touched me slightly in the same way that Michael's first demo touched me in way back in 1970. And it, and it had a kind of a potential completeness to it. It was, it was nicely constructed, even though it was actually constructed quite wrongly in places, which I, I managed to get him to put right. Some of the best hooks, got, they didn't get developed. So with my producer's hat on, I, I managed to recognize some of those hooks and, and get him to expand them. That was on Sanctuary 1, and it worked very well. And then um, on Sanctuary 2, he sent me all the stems, and I did the same thing on that. I can see him as being the most recent and maybe only person at the moment who's extending the life of prog rock in, 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 a, in a way that Michael's kind of dropped out of that.
That's Robert Reed, uh, Marimba from his forthcoming Sanctuary Part 2 album. And uh, what I've heard so far, it sounds really, really good. And uh, something I have heard in its uh, totality is the uh, new single, the new July single, which is the last track today, Can I Go Back Again, uh, which is out, I think, now on the Fruits de Mer, Fruits de Mer label. Um, lots of Beatles references, which are pretty cool. Is that one of yours, Peter? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of fun. It's nostalgic fun, really, because all the words are from Beatles songs apart from a couple that introduce it. So the whole thing was constructed solely from Beatles songs. So I just hope I don't get Mr. McCartney or anyone come around <laughs> knocking at my door asking for some of the proceeds. Well, they wouldn't get a lot, but I mean, they might, they're welcome to knock on my door. Please, Mr. McCartney, come and knock <laughs> on my door. That era, I, I can't believe that youngsters today, I sound old and say youngsters today, but I can't believe that they will ever be able to experience what we experienced at that time because it was so completely different now everything is just a mishmash and a melting pot of everything and it's just something else that's a progression from what's gone before or or rehashing it then it was so different it was so exciting and when i say go back again i'd love to feel that excitement as a youngster with all that going on you're full of hope everything is possible you know, you've got great aspirations and just it was just fun putting that together and what we wanted to do is give it a modern feel, but as we'd said, we wanted to be July from 68, but how we would be now, but with our 68 heads on. Uh, but give it a modern feel, but give references to the 60s, which I kind of think it does. It's a, it it's a nice tune that, that's sort of... Brilliant. I, I think it's a nice floaty song. Brilliant, mate. Yeah, fantastic. Well, before we uh, play Can I Go Back Again, new single by July. Um, what's next? More live shows? Any Any more new music in the pipeline or anything? It's it's not easy, but I would love to carry on doing live gigs, and I'd love to, I mean, the ideal thing would be to be picked up by some monster-sized, world-sized band and put on a world tour and, you know, actually get through to a few more people. Pete and I, we haven't got two acres to rub together, so we've still got the fire in our bellies to write songs that actually come from the soul and from the heart, from where it was still coming from in 1968 when we were we had young fire in our belly but we've still got the fire in our belly now and i think a three-part career is good two two albums doesn't say mean anything but three albums is the right number of albums to have thank you so much tom thank you so much peter it's been uh, it's been an education and a, a, a privilege to spend time with you guys and uh, play such fabulous music and um uh, you know, recently referenced by Sean Lennon as, you know, the, the greatest underground psych band. So, you, you know, you're still making waves now. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Thank ditto. Thanks, Jason. So here's for a third podcast in another six years' time then. <laughs> <laughs>
from the days I left behind Winter Ham and Penny Lane Can I go back again? And she's left home and made them cry Eating fish and finger pie Filling cracks in the pouring rain Can I go back again? Once again, can I go back?